Welcome to Season 3 of Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for allowing us to continue to celebrate and support great writing and to serve our community. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Our guest today is Genki Ferguson. Genki was born into a family of writers that includes his father, Giller Prize winner, Will Ferguson. He grew up in Calgary, but spent much of his childhood in Japan, where his mother's family still resides. We spoke about his debut novel, Satellite Love, an unconventional story set in Japan in 1999 about a girl, a boy, and a satellite. Ruth Ozeki says, Satellite Love is one of those rare and affecting novels that will leave you breathless, charmed, and deeply thoughtful. A beautiful rumination on sentience, imagination, impermanence, and friendship, Genki Ferguson has written a story that lives on the precarious and satisfying edge of melancholy and exuberance. Here's my conversation with Genki Ferguson. Genki, thank you so much for, for talking with me this afternoon. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be talking with you about Satellite Love, your debut novel. And uh, we're thinking that probably the best place to start is to ask you to share a little taste of the prose. Give us a sense of, of this wonderful story. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sean. Uh, so I'll start with a reading from the beginning right here of uh, Satellite Love. Uh, chapter one, Anna. When I close my eyes, I still see satellites. After all this time, I can't seem to forget them. No matter what I do, they're always there, held up above the world with a cruel indifference. It feels as though if I were to reach out just a little farther, I might be able to pluck one mid-orbit and bring it down to me on Earth. I used to understand what the satellite said, but now I can't tell if they're taunting me or asking for forgiveness. When I was younger, I believed I could speak to them, and I suppose on a certain level, I still do. I'll catch myself mumbling something to the sky, asking questions about what they can see and what they can't. The only difference is that now they don't respond. But I still can't let go of what I wanted to believe as a child. I don't imagine any of us ever do. And that was uh, chapter one. And that gives us a little taste of Anna's voice. Anna is one of um, one of the main characters, one of the voices that we we hear from. And I, I thought, given this is your first book, I'm I'm hoping we can talk um, about the whole process. But let's start with you. You've got these richly drawn characters. Can you tell me about how you got to know Anna? Where where did Anna come from? Yeah, Anna Anna Obata, as she is in the book, she's a, a lonely sixteen year old girl in southern Japan who she one day uh, looks up in the sky. She's kind of an outcast at school and left to fend for herself at home. Uh, and she looks up at the sky one day and she sees a satellite floating above, uh, and she ends up falling in love with this satellite. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time in in southern Japan, growing up. I have family there in in Kyushu. I've also spent a lot of time as a as an English teacher. Uh, teaching English to exchange students who come over. So I, I suppose in a way, Anna's kind of a conglomeration of all this, uh, all these people I've known, all these voices I've known coming out of Japan, and also kind of all these formative years I spent as a teenager growing up uh, in Japan as well. So much of what this book is about is 
it seems to me as a, as a reader is about what do we owe our imagination on a certain level? The question that Anna has asked is, is, or Anna seems to be asking me as a reader is, does she owe anything to Leo, uh, to the satellite that she's in love with? Do we owe anything to our imagination? I'm just wondering, as you're writing a book like this, where does it start? Does it start with this sense of, 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 a, of a question? Does it start with a, just the image of her looking at the sky? Like, wh where does the story come from and what are you trying to work through? That's a great question. I mean, um, I think I've said this, maybe I've said this before in the past, but writing is, is kind of similar to being a magpie. You, you find a lot of shiny bits and you start plucking them out. And you try to make, you make a bit of a nest or a book or that's probably where this metaphor ends. But uh, in the case of Satellite Love, at least, it was having all these different kind of voices and, and, and they started coming to you separately. It did all start with Anna with an image of a girl looking up at the sky and falling in love with a satellite. But then also there's a character of a grandfather who's slowly losing his memories and of the general who's a mysterious, maybe war veteran, maybe not. Um, and I think this all started to come together around this idea of belief and of faith and not really specifically religious faith. Although in Soki's case, uh, who's the son of a Shinto priest, it is religious, but belief and faith in general. So for Anna, it's a desire, a belief that she can belong or a belief that maybe someone is out there for her. For Soki, it's a belief in kind of Japanese animalist kami spirits. Um, but but everyone kind of, I think we've found ourselves in maybe a little bit of a, a lonely world or, or one where we're all quite filled with our fair share of Inui, as they say. Uh, and what do we hold on to is the question. And, and what do we what do we desire? And is it our imagination? And what do we owe these beliefs and these, these kind of figments of our, our deeper selves? And, you know, you meant, so Soki is the other, uh, I think, main character um you know the two that are that are telling us the story there's three voice four voices i guess that we hear from from throughout the story but you mentioned that anna uh you know is a sort of a mix and mash of of, of your various experiences you've had is that the same of soki or how did he come into your life how did how did that character uh, where did you find him yeah i think i mean soki himself kind of acts as a foil for anna you know anna she's very She's very kind of lonely, but she's also very headstrong and very sure of what she wants and what she needs. And Soki lends a kind of softer voice as who he is a person. He's someone who's very much aware of what he's questioning, whereas maybe Anne is not so much. You know, growing up and, and going to Japan and seeing these shrines, you you would see these shrine families and see shrine maidens and people who are working in there. Um, and I suppose just kind of a fascination with with the Shinto spiritualism, which is very much a mysterious aspect of, of the Japanese culture, we can almost say. Um, when we talk about faith or religion here, we maybe think of more kind of resolute or kind of organized religion in the sense of like Christianity or Catholicism. But Shintoism, it's more of a kind of deeper underlying spirituality that kind of, well, it, it informs just almost daily life in a sense. There's not so many practicing Shintoists so much as there are Japanese that are aware of Shinto. Um, so I guess that's where Soki kind of falls is he's he's the kind of spiritual backing of of, Japan, of Sakita, the city in the book, and also Japan in that sense as well. And he's developing, a, a, I think, a, a unique relationship with his faith and with, um, because his father, I think you mentioned, is a, um, had, was a priest and has quit. Like, what is it that Soki brings to the table that, that you needed for this story? Like, why, I, I'm just, I guess I'm trying to get a sense. It feels to me that in much the same way that that Anna looks up into the sky and plucks these characters out. That's got to be a little bit how 
how you as a writer would find a character? Or am I completely wrong? Is it completely different? No, no, is, is your experience? You're, you're, of... you're there. You're there. <laughs> that is, and I mean, you know, I'm sure everyone has their own methods, but it, it was like that kind of. I mean, when you start to write these stories, Anna and Soki, they really, it's it's cliche to say, but it really is true that they start to take on kind of a, a life of their own in their, that sense. Uh, and, and that, I suppose, speaks to Anna's kind of belief in the satellite and the way that her imagination kind of gets the better of her. And Soki, too, how far he should, or how far he feels he's able to trust these kami. Uh, so in a sense, writing the book was kind of a reflection of the characters as well. And the same questions I was working through. How much can I trust these characters uh, that I'm writing? Uh, how much can they trust their pigments of their imagination? And how much can Sophie trust his gods? One of the really interesting things you're playing with throughout this is, is the idea that, that Leo, who is the satellite, um, may or may not know things that Anna doesn't know. And I'm just wondering if, if, if you had that experience as a writer, finding out that your character uh, was bringing things to the table that you didn't expect. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot to kind of mirror there. So Leo is the satellite, the figment of Anna's imagination, who at one point comes down to Earth uh, to be with her. And he kind of realizes that as a figment, as a figment of her imagination, you know, he's limited to what she's aware of. He only knows what she knows and not necessarily the other way around. Um, and in a sense, it's kind of like a, a giving up for him or a, of a surrender. He has to just accept Anna to lead him through the world as he kind of it's almost like a Pinocchio story in the same sense, too. You know, Leo comes down to Earth and discovers what it is to be human, even if it is in his own kind of limited capacity as an imaginary person. But in the same sense, when you're writing a story, it's kind of like a like you're taking a road trip and you've kind of drawn a map. You want to get from point A to point B. But along the way, you're going to take little stops here or there. And maybe the characters want to take a detour or maybe you find an interesting little pathway there. So... I always knew where Anna's story was going to end and kind of the the intensity with which it ends up uh, happening. But uh, the path to get there wasn't always defined. Right. Okay. So that's a great, you're, a wonderful metaphor. And I think because um, this is your first book, I think for, for a lot of listeners who are, um, you know, probably very curious about this process. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost mystical and magical for those of us that just, we, we, we get handed a book and we can dive in and the process, you know, how the sausage gets made, I think is really fascinating for a lot of people. And, and so my question is, so you, so, you know, tell us basically how a book comes to be. So you have this idea of Anna, you, you said it started with an image of, of this girl looking up and, and her character you, you've stitched together from little bits of your own life and your own experience. And, and then she becomes she begins to develop a voice and you know that you have an end in mind, right? You have, you're saying that you started this with, with an idea of more or less the shape of her journey. Walk us through that process of, of how do you, how do you start? Uh, everyone has their own process, you know, and I've talked to other writers about this and I know some, there's, there's two ways, I suppose. I'm being really like reductive here, <laughs> but for the sake of my, for the sake of my argument, there's two ways and only ever two ways that people can ever write ever. Um, but generally speaking, uh, for some people, it's like sculpting. They have a big block of material and they, you know, say you want to, you're sculpting David, you have a big block of marble and you have the image inside there and you slowly chip away at the stone until gradually it comes away. But you're, it's creation by reduction, right? So you have all these great ideas and slowly narrowing it in. Uh, and then for others, maybe it's more like watercolor, like an ink, ink painting where you have this under sketch and you slowly, carefully build up elements. Um, and Again, those are just different ways. For me, who is maybe more like the the latter 
method, more like watercoloring, where I had the image of Anna and I was slowly building it up. So early drafts of the story were very quite almost like solipsistic. It was really just Anna kind of going through. But as you go through the story, you realize you want to illuminate different aspects of Anna more. You know, here's Anna, here's a bullied girl and what she's going through and the kind of, she's not necessarily always a sympathetic character. Uh, you know, she she lashes out. Certain things she does are, are definitely difficult and result of her own actions. She's not, she's someone you feel for, but not necessarily someone that you necessarily have to agree with every step of the way. But to create a character like that, to create a character that I hoped to be complex like Anna, uh, I need to illuminate more of her life outside of just within her own head. So, I mean, the perspective of the satellite was always there. The satellite in its own way is kind of like, Anna's voice unhindered, like uh, we're talking ego id, almost maybe like id in a sense where he's, and he's even aware of it, he's Anna's voice without Anna in a sense, if that even may. <laughs> but, um, but to flesh out, we also need to see, you know, like what are, what do her classmates think of her? What about Soki, this boy that she kind of pins so much love and hope onto? What, are, what is his perspective on her? And what about her grandfather who kind of, he has a dementia or something along those lines. It's undefined, but he freshly forgets her every single chapter. Every single chapter we meet the grandfather, it's like starting for fresh. So every single grandfather chapter is like a new perspective on Anna. So I guess it was just a matter of as we go through the narrative and we see Anna slowly kind of descend into her obsession with the satellite and also Soki. Um, well, who is she as a person? And that's where all these different voices come into play, right? Kind of a canon telling of, uh, of satellite love. Uh, and in that sense, it was like building up, you know, I, every single time I went through and did another pass of the book, I found I was adding more and more of Silky, who ended up being a really fun voice for me, uh, and more and more of the grandfather and, and more of Leo as well. Leo the satellite. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as you're, as you're talking this through, I, one thing that occurs to me uh, only now is that the only main character that we never hear from directly is the general. Um, was there a point where you had something from the general's perspective or, or, I mean, you know, is there a reason why some characters needed to, 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 to address the reader directly and some didn't? Yeah. The, the general never had, there's never a point where I thought I would write a chapter from the general's perspective, but that was like, uh, I suppose like a calculated thing or it was intentional where the general is. He's a World War II vet, supposedly, at least it, it pings back and forth whether how much of him you can believe and what he's saying is true. But uh, Anna goes to visit him on her weekends or, or days where she skips school and kind of she sees in him a kind of mentor or almost a father figure. Uh, but he always... And sorry, just he's not just he's not just a World War II vet. It, it, he's if his story is true that he tells Anna and has told the world, he's one of these remarkable figures um yeah yeah <laughs> where the war continued right he was in the philippines and continued to fight long after which is a i mean one of the most amazing Thank you for remembering that <laughs> uh, yeah i would just love that yeah. element of, of world of, of japanese history post-world war ii there were entire there were soldiers that just did not give up the fight right so he was one of them yeah he was a japanese holdout he and and this is based on fact uh, he's a conglomeration of actual cases of japanese holdouts but uh after the war ended whether it's because he refused to accept the end of the war or that he had his communication cut off. He switches his story throughout the story or throughout the book. 
but uh, he just refuses to stop fighting. And they find him decades after the war is over as an old man, crouched, malnourished, dying in this cave, clutching a barely functioning rifle. Uh, and that's his story, at least. And, and one of the things that Anna finds so fascinating about him. And as for why we never really get a chapter from his perspective, it's that, well, this is a case where I felt limited information works, where with Anna and the challenges Anna brings, we want to flesh her out and we want to get all these different senses of who she is. But with the general, he's meant to be kind of shrouded in mystery. And I thought the best way is to really just experience him through Anna's perspective. Right. And is it a coincidence, or am I reading too much into this, the fact that you've got uh, two or three, if we count Leo the satellite, who's very young, uh, got three young protagonists. You've got kind of the parents who are non who exist only in how little they exist in the book, or largely by their absence. And then you've got the the general and the grandfather, the two elderly characters who are both, let's say, unreliable in different ways, or 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 and, and, and unknowable and mysterious, and 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 maybe maybe past their prime on a certain fundamental level. Was this something you were consciously playing with notions of generations? Is there a reason that the the whole the parents, the middle generation, are, are basically absent entirely from the story? Yeah, I mean, um, I think growing up in, in our memories and in our very intense memories of growing up and all the problems they had to deal with, whether they're large or smaller or whatever, but it really does feel like you're on your own, whether that's true or not. And um, in Anna's case, she's very much alone. Uh, she she lives without her. Her father's out of the picture and her mother's mostly absent. She finds herself mostly as a caretaker for the grandfather. Um, but in Soki's case too, his he has the opposite drama. And for him, Soki and Anna are kind of opposites in that sense where for him, his mother's actually quite overbearing and, and overly protective. So where he needs to strike out on his own, Anna needs someone to kind of protect her or to guide her through these really difficult years. Um, but you're right, there is also a bit of a play there um, where maybe Soki and Leo might have something that links them, whether karmically or, or whether bound to Anna's imagination or not. Uh, the general and Anna's grandfather have some ties between them as well that get revealed later on in the book. Mm-hmm. And, and the parents, um, certainly Anna's uh, mother is, uh, I think, only present, if I'm correct, notes on the counter, right? Is that the only... And, and yeah, I mean, or for most of it, at the very end, I think we do see her, um, she is present, but... Yeah, 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 really, I mean, how we how we experience Anna's mother is through these notes she leaves on the counter, and she's not necessarily, like, a cold or even a bad parent, it's just, uh, these things are left, kind of, you, you experience these things through Anna's perception, and she doesn't get the whole picture either, just as a, as a child, I suppose, but, um... It's just a matter of circumstance. You can't exactly fully blame her mother for not always being in the picture. It's just truly unfortunate matter of circumstance. And, you know, you, you mentioned that with, with Anna, she's not always, um, not always entirely sympathetic. How did you see playing with that? I mean, she, she at the very beginning of the book, she's clearly bullied um, by her classmates, feels very isolated. What did you, what were you trying to play with there by making it, it's not that it's her fault she's bullied, but you, you do, through the story, begin to understand why or the things that she is doing that make it easy for the other kids to not welcome her. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's quite intense and she she's not always a victim. So she knows how to hit back, let's say. 
Um, and it was kind of like a game of chicken writing that or, or creating Anna as a character is uh, how far can you go? How far can you push sympathy before you start to lose people? Uh, so that was something I was always kind of going back and forth with. But the kind of reasoning for that is I think in a lot of, well, not just fiction, but in, in all artistic mediums and also in our day-to-day life, when we see people who are hurting and we see people who are uh, in pain or who are lost or need help, we kind of need them to be weaker than us. Um, and we need people to be perfect victims. I can help you only if you're completely pathetic or you're completely below me, and then I can feel good for helping you. But that's really not the case. And the reality is humans are so much more complex and the answer's always been between. And are we not all deserving of some element of sympathy? You know, Even if we are difficult people, even if we're not all perfect or perfect victims in that sense, do we not deserve mercy do not deserve love in some form and to be clear Anna overall is a sympathetic character but I I never wanted to write someone who was who was purely weak or purely a victim I she needed to have some sort of strength too even if it's not always applied the best ways one of the things that you wrote beautifully is the look on you describe a uh, uh, a moment when Leo is disappointed in his creator. And I'm just wondering, it feels very much to me reading that, that that's, that's a real experience that you had somehow. And so I'm wondering, was there a moment where any of these characters gave you a look where, the, where you realized you'd failed them as their creator? Was that a real experience for you? Or is it just good writing? And, and you know, did I just, just get caught up in this moment? And, and... Oh, no, 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 not at all. I mean, definitely twinges of guilt sometimes with the, I think, I think maybe a lot of writers experience this twinges of guilt at what you put your characters through and whatnot. Um, I think also a lot of this has to do with uh, kind of the feeling of growing up and realizing, you know, just, just the same with imagination, we tend to put people on pedestals as well, whether it's in love or in Anna's case too, looking for mentors. Uh, and, and growing up, especially someone as lonely as Anna, although I feel like a lot of us would have this experience too, we tend to put certain people on pedestals, whether they're uh, kind of, yeah, people we see as mentors or older figures or people we see as parental figures and whatnot. Um, and there comes a moment where you realize, oh, we're all just human. There, people fail. People aren't always what we hold them up to be. Um, and I suppose for Leo, it's a little bit of that as well. Just as Anna maybe starts to realize that the general isn't who she always thought he was, Leo starts to realize that about Anna as well. Um, as for the characters, I mean, Leo, Anna maybe they would have wanted a bit of a different ending. <laughs> I think I think they'd be happy with the ending. I think the ending's all right for them. I don't know, I'd have to ask them. There's, I'd have to see if there's a book too. <laughs> have these characters lingered? I, I hear, this is something I hear from, from writers uh, often, is that sometimes they think they're done with a character and the character insists they're not, and this sometimes is where sequels come from. Is this something that you have experienced? Is, is, is Anna done with you? Is she still there? She's still there, but I wouldn't say there's any plans for a sequel at the moment. I'm, I'm writing other stuff. Yeah, but as for characters crossing over between the real and the imaginary, the there's a character, the prince at one point, and he's a short-lived character. He only appears for about a chapter or so, but he's one of Anna's uh, other imaginary friends. Um, and he's a prince from a faraway land who rides on horseback, kind of this childhood fantasy she had that comes back to haunt her. Uh, he originally came from a dream. I'd had a really bizarrely vivid dream. I don't know if I ate something weird or <laughs> I accidentally inhaled some paint fumes on my way home or something. 
But uh, I had a really intense dream about this prince and pretty much the chapter he appears in verbatim comes from the, from a dream. Uh, reworked a little bit, of course, to fit the book, but there's an example of, of characters kind of crossing that boundary, crossing that line. And who's also, again, uh, interacting with her with a, with a level of, I think I can say this without giving anything away, but the prince, there is a sense that the creator has failed the creation. And so I, I don't think I'm inventing this. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> I think there is, there is this. It's, it's there. No, no, I don't. I don't think you are at all. I think you, you've tuned into something that I haven't even realized. And now I'm like going back, like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, that's a heavy question. You know, I will, like, as the writer, can you do your characters justice all the way? Um, I certainly went as far as I could with them, but I think, well, I guess. Okay, here's a here's a somewhat hopefully eloquent answer. Uh, I think as a as a creator, you can only go so far. I mean, I have these images of Anna, and, and any writer has these images of their characters, and you can only take them so far. And and maybe there are kind of feelings of you know what else could I have done with them, or or did I do them justice, or did you know did I I do Anna and Soki and the whole cast of characters right? But I suppose the other end of that just comes from the reader. You know, as writing is only half of the equation. Uh, I, I write half the story and then the reader reads it and comes up with their own half. And I do love talking to people who read Satellite Love because uh, everyone always has their completely, not completely, but everyone has such different ideas of who's who and what's what and what was real and what happened to who. Um, there is an ending. It does come to a, an end, but there are certain things that are left a little open-ended, you know? Um, well, and at one in the middle point, I, I was almost wondering if you were... Uh, playing with, uh, to some extent, you know, Yann Martel very famously sets up two, in Life of Pi, there's two choices as a reader. You can either believe the story as it's told or believe the rational version of the story. And I was wondering in the middle point of the book if, if, if that was something you were going to be exploring. And then I think you, you answered that for me in the story. I think the story answers that question. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, there are certain, you know, the... Uh, we know certain characters are imaginary, but who else is imaginary? And what what's all that goes on in Anna's mind and, and what's real and what's not? Um, yeah, I, I did leave some of these questions open-ended. And occasionally I'll get someone, and I, I really love these enthusiastic readers, uh, who will try to like pigeonhole me and be like, all right, I got you in the corner. What's the answer? And I always kind of feel bad because the answer is that I don't know. Um, and again, this is another cliche. Before I wrote this book, I'd hear other authors talk about, I don't know, like some open-ended question well I don't know the answer I was thinking like, all right jackass like I know you know the answer <laughs> tell, tell me for real I didn't realize that that was yeah yeah come on don't be coy like what is this you know don't be cute with me like t tell me the answer uh unfortunately that is true I don't know all the answers <laughs> and so there's a yeah you know your creators your creations do eventually run away from you as a creator and I guess it's up to the audience to the readers to pick up the pieces and, and see what they make of it. Yeah, so now for, for, for Anna and, and to a large extent also so Soki, there is an element of living in a world where they're having to repurpose or reimagine their parents' lives in some way, whether it's the faith or the, the care or the self-care, you know. So, you know, you're... Uh, your father is a, is a well-known Canadian writer. You grew up around, presumably, around writers and books and ideas. And I'm wondering... I know a lot of people whose parents write who realize, you know, at a very young age, stay away from the creative industry, stay away from writing. Uh, tell, I wasn't so wise, unfortunately. Well, so tell, what was that like? How, how you know, what, what is it? 
was was your you know how does your relationship with with your father's writing impact your writing? How does your relationship with that wider world of literature sort of impact your your sense of wanting to be a writer? I mean, was that something that you think made it more likely that you were going to be a writer, or less likely? Is this something you struggled with, sort of uh, being in somebody's shadow or or making your own world? You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think I think it was it was an absolutely a net positive, at least on the writing end of things. Uh, but um. Yeah, yeah, my father's Will Ferguson. Uh, so I learned a ton about writing from him, just growing up in the same household as him. But actually, up until I wrote Satellite Love, I never really imagined being an author. I, my family's a family of storytellers. My uncle's also an author. Uh, my grandfather wrote some children's books. Uh, my one of my other uncles is a composer, so that's like musical storytelling, I suppose. Uh, but um, so yeah, my family of, of storytellers. Uh, and I always knew I wanted to do something with that. I went to art school originally to be an animator. And then I realized I was really bad at drawing. So I switched to filmmaking. <laughs> and in filmmaking, I realized I'd much rather write books. So I always knew I kind of wanted to tell stories. I guess it would just depended on the medium. And so writing Satellite Love was kind of like a return to form. Like, oh, this is what I'm best at. I mean, I read more than I do anything else. So I guess so. Um, as opposed, as for what I learned... I mean, my mostly just growing up with in the same house as my dad, it was just the realities of being a writer of the kind of day to day work of it all. I mean, there are like flights of fancy and moments of brilliant inspiration, et cetera. But really, the the vast majority of writing is just sitting down and, and typing and typing and typing and typing and working through problems like logic puzzles. Um, so, yeah, I, I love my father's works. I've read them all, obviously, but I would we do write quite differently and um i suppose we just have different influences in that sense my dad influenced me in how to write but uh as for what to write i was more influenced by kind of japanese authors of old of like Kawabata. yeah there was a real or and uh, you know maybe this is a there's an element of murakami in in this yeah uh, yeah he's one of the me and maybe that's you know no no absolutely he's one of my favorites for sure and and just the kind of larger tradition of japanese uh magical realism and storytelling and all that um, who else have I read recently? Anyway, I, I so, won't sit here and name drop names all day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but okay. So, so living with a writer. So you're saying the what is it about? Like, what is it you were able to learn from him? And you're saying the it's the day to day. It's the the how much work is involved. Yeah, how in much? It or, yeah, yeah. Seeing it, seeing writing play out as like a live marathon. It's like watching Tour de France, but instead of <laughs> biking along France, you're sitting at a desk typing. Uh, so it's just kind of seeing like, yeah, the, how, what it takes to write and, and, uh, just the perseverance and the, also the kind of at times analytical mind it takes through, I, I've worked through problems. I don't, I don't know if I've ever offered any real solutions, but I remember my dad working through problems on like 409, for instance, where he'd have all these characters and okay, how do I move them in the right ways and how do I get them to do the right things? Yeah, no. And were you comfortable talking through some of the problems you faced with this, with, with your dad, with your family, or or did you feel that you needed to do it all yourself? Like, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, I did actually. Originally, just because I wasn't sure whether I could write it or not, I I wrote the whole thing without telling anyone or or send anything to my dad. Mostly just because I wanted to prove, I guess, almost to myself that I could do it on my own. How long? Uh, and I'm trying to think. Probably about five or six months for the first draft, which maybe sounds pretty fast, but I think that's about standard. So much writing is editing. Um. I mean, everyone has their own methods, like I said earlier, but uh, 
for me, I, I, a book is an impulse. You know, you have a thought, you have a feeling and get through it as fast as you can before you lose it. So I not I didn't necessarily rush, but I just tried to let Anna speak through me as fast as possible, get the words on the page and maybe took me four or five, maybe six months to write the first draft. And in that first draft, is that is Anna the only voice we hear uh, in that first draft? Or well, you... it's Anna and Leo. And then I think there's a, a touch of Silky, but the grandfather, uh, d- his perspective doesn't appear in the first draft. And Silky is very much reduced uh, as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So the first draft was very mostly Anna and I burned through it as fast as I could, you know, get that impulse down. Um, and then... And then who do you show it to first? Do you, could you bring it to your dad? Do you keep it from your dad? Like, I'm just, who do you, who reads oh, it first? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well, eventually, you know, I did edit through it and then I took it as far as I thought I could take it until I thought, all right, this is as good a book as I alone can, can make it. Because writing really is a community effort. You know, for any one book you read, there's about 200 people who've read it also and offered their thoughts and, and feedback. Um, so after that, I did send it to my dad. And it was kind of like a, like a surprise. Here's a manuscript on your doorstep. But this one, you're uh, obliged to help because I'm <laughs> your son. Not that there's any feeling like that. Um, and then, that, yeah, then after that, he got the manuscript and he read it too. And um, we kind of talked it through and what he thought of it. And he offered some of his insights. I mean, I'm very lucky to to be able to to pick his brain sometimes like about these characters about these problems um and the grandfather were you was there fear was there any fear in you i mean because it's one thing you know to 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 live with an award-winning author who's extremely acclaimed for for what they do uh was there was there hesitation for you to show it to your dad or did you always know that that was going to happen and, and it was going to be okay. Like, we're, 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 yeah, I don't know, I, I mean, imagine somehow that this would be scary. I mean, it was, it's always nerve, it's always kind of nerve wracking showing people your your work and whatnot. And that feeling still kind of persists now. If <laughs> if someone I know buys Satellite Love and go, oh my God, okay, sure. Um, so yeah, I guess I was nervous in that sense, but I was never worried. I mean, me and my dad have a really great relationship. So he was never going to, he was never going to trash it. Uh, even if it was bad, <laughs> I don't think uh, it would have been a problem. So I was never worried about what my dad would say personally, but I was nervous. You know, it's, you're bearing a really kind of vulnerable part of yourself to anyone is is a scary thing to do. And so, okay, so you you, you go there, and then then other people are involved. Your dad, uh, other editors, other readers, and yeah. and you begin to add layers and characters. And at what point, I guess the other part, of you, you, you're working on another book now, so clearly this one has done well, but did you, had this book been, in, I mean, it, it's introduced into the world during a pandemic, which has got to be the strangest time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, have you been in a bookstore? I actually work have at a bookstore. Have you book seen store. your book in a bookstore? Okay, so have you yeah. seen your book in a bookstore? Because I just, I'll tell you, two days ago was my first time in a bookstore in, in a a year, and oh. I saw your book on display Woo. at Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and I was, it was so, I saw it, and I thought, oh my God, imagine having your book out, a first book out in the world, especially, a debut novel, and then not being able to see it in stores, no, yeah, knowing yeah. it's there, but not, uh, how weird would that be? Yeah, I think it's But so pretty, you've seen it. Yeah, I have seen it, and I, I know this year's been tough for, for probably, I think maybe it's been harder for more established writers who, who know what it's like to have the in-person events and have the, the bookstores open all the time. This is my first book, so I was honestly just super grateful and happy for anything. Um, but I also work at a bookstore, uh, part-time at an at indie bookstore here in Vancouver. Uh, book Warehouse, by the way. Shout out to Book Warehouse. Um, shout out to Book so, Warehouse. Yeah, signed well. copies available, right? Signed, of Satellite absolutely. Love from Book Warehouse. Whenever I remember, yeah. it's like another 
That's the one thing about <laughs> writing a book. When you work at a bookstore, it's like now another job to be like, oh, I got to sign my own book now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I've been very lucky in that sense where maybe some of the pandemic blow has been lessened by the fact that in working at a bookstore, I have people come to me all the time who've read it and, mm. and that's always very special. So yes, no in-person events, but I'm still very happy to be able to meet some of my readers nonetheless. And so at what point did you know another book was coming? That's the other thing I'm curious about. When did, uh, when, when did you know for sure you... That another book was, that I was writing another book? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or that it, as in I was like capable of writing another book, let's say. Yeah, or that you had to, or that you wanted to, or, you know, oh, what oh, point, yeah. like, so, you know, <laughs> you've written this book, you do all the work, it, it's with an editor, is it after the book is published that you uh, well, say, oh, no? The, a book has a really long lead time, you know, I finished writing Satellite Love around 2016, the first draft, or 2017, I suppose, uh, but then it takes a while, especially with the first book, you know, you got to get an agent, you got to get an editor, you know, that, and you got to edit all the, the whole shebang, so long, long lead time. Um, so I was already writing before Satellite Love was published. Before Satellite Love even had a publisher, I was already working on the next one. So I suppose it's just kind of like an impulse. It's like a curse. Can't stop. <laughs> even if I wanted to, I wouldn't be able to. One of the things is it's, you know, you talked a little bit about the vulnerability of, of putting your putting yourself out on display in a way, right? It, it, it is an act of bravery to write a book and send it out in the world. And, you know, people can be mean. You go to Goodreads and you see... You know, you know that the books that are being savaged by readers, probably the writers work just as hard on as the books that are being praised. Yeah, right? I yeah. mean, the, the, a, the labor. Yeah, yeah, I went to film school. But there's a saying in film school that a, a bad movie is just as hard to make as a good movie. It's like the same yeah. amount of effort. <laughs> and so you start, you knew, so this is, this is wonderful to, for me to hear that it's not about the, because the first book lands and it's successful that you need to keep writing. It's that the storytelling is there once you start. And, and. I guess the, the question I want to end on is, is um, did you answer questions for yourself with this first book that led to new questions for the next book? Or is book two, your second novel, a com- just a completely different experience? Like, I, I'm just wondering about what is the connection between having written one book and moving on to the, the second book, which I hear, uh, not to be discouraging in any way, but I hear from, from a lot of writers that the second book is the toughest one to write. Yeah, yeah, you hear that the sophomore curse or whatever. Yeah, uh, that's, and that's a great question. And I will say that um, while book two isn't a direct sequel to Satellite of, um, it does ask a lot of the same questions, and it kind of continues some of the conclusions that I draw in Satellite Love about belonging, about the nature of belief, uh, about about you know um, what it means to love someone and to put them on a pedestal or to not. Uh, I think I, I tried to take those questions a bit further with the next book. Um, also set in Japan, but uh, yeah, well, you know, things are always liable to change. So I don't want to give too much away, but yeah, I think I tried to take what I asked in Satellite Love and then maybe push those questions a little bit further, ask them with maybe a, hopefully a bit more of a, a little bit more of a mature or, grounded uh, take than a 16 year old uh would have <laughs> in satellite love well genki thank you so much congratulations on this uh this book that is out in the world sean it's been a pleasure that was genki ferguson his debut novel satellite love is available from fine independent booksellers like perfect books on elgin street as always i want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times 
If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without you. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.